This is it. It is the last day in our New Year's series that we kicked off the Sunday after New Year's called Moving from a Mindset of What Is to What If. I started this with you guys because it was striking home to me personally. Uh, I want to share about that. Uh, I had two, uh, a twofold goal when we got this rolling. The first was, and this is for me, like if you are around Mendham, you know most of the time I write this stuff, I'm writing it to me, and then I just kind of come up and share what, what I'm trying to teach myself. Maybe you can learn too. <laughs> um, the first was to challenge myself and each of us to begin the process of thinking differently in 2020. Oftentimes when we start out a new year, we say we're going to behave differently. I've been challenging you to think differently, specifically to change our, our mindsets, to move out of uh, well-worn ruts and patterns of thinking that we get trapped in like a wheel in a groove so that we could experience what God has for us blessing and provision and purpose and abundant life. These are all the things that Jesus said those that followed him would experience. But the truth is, many of us have never tasted and seen that. Underlying that goal was to move us from a mindset of scarcity, that there's not enough of anything, that we have to compete for everything, we have to hold and hoard anything. And when we live this way, we develop these huge levels of anxiety and depression that have become so familiar to all of us. The second thought, the second purpose, if you will, uh, for entering into this series was that as our mindsets changed, if we would work on this together, as we kind of smooth in the ruts of fear caused by scarcity thinking, that maybe as a, a church, and maybe even more importantly as, as a large sub-community within our community, we could become a different kind of place, a safe place, if you would, a place where we believed in the abundance of God and the peace and the comfort and the hope that it brings, and that when people come here, they'd feel it. They'd go, there's something different there. There's something different about not just the way they act, but the way they think. Specifically, I thought this would be very important for our teens, my teens, your teens, our community's teens who are feeling the brunt of the fallout of scarcity thinking and its byproducts of fear, depression, and anxiety. And what's very frustrating for me, I don't know what the right word is, since I began this topic, I'm aware of at least two more of our kids who found themselves in so much emotional pain and distress that cho chose to end their lives rather than to continue this battle because the pain was that great. And, and so I, I just want us to start thinking differently so that we could be different, mothers and fathers and people in our community, and this, this place would have a different air about it. Towards that end, we've been studying a pattern that Jesus established first at the, only, the first time you see it is that the only miracle all four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who wrote the gospel stories of Jesus, the only one, the only miracle they all felt compelled to include in the recounting of what he did. We've come to know it over the years as the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember the story, Jesus was presented with a situation of scarcity. Instead, he released the power of the abundant provision of God. 5,000 men gathered, not counting the women and children, and all there was to feed this hungry lot was a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. But it was just at that moment, Jesus reveals this rhythm, this pattern that we've been tracking throughout his ministry that he repeats over and over and over and over again. 
Now, if you've journeyed with us over these weeks, hopefully the pattern has become familiar. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, takes the bread. He blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. We've looked at that four-part pattern, how we could do the same with our own lives and release into our lives the provision and abundance of God. So instead of hearing about a life that could, be, that could be the kind of life that Jesus spoke about, we could experience it. Towards that end, I encourage you as, you, as it relates to the taking of the bread, Jesus takes the bread and he sees capacity in it. He doesn't, he doesn't see a couple of loaves and a few fish and 20,000 people. He sees what God could do with a couple of loaves and a few fish and 20,000 people. And so I've asked you to start to see things differently in your lives, to see what you've been given, your time, your resources, your talents, your treasures, your relationships, to begin to see them with the capacity that God has for doing something so much more with them that you could possibly even think or imagine. You don't know what, what lays at your hands. The disciples saw a couple of loaves and bread. Jesus saw the capacity that could be unleashed if just that portion was dedicated and set aside and consecrated to God. So I've encouraged you to do just that. Start slow if you don't believe me, but take a little of your time and your talents and your treasures and your relationships, your thoughts, your body, your goals, your will, your desires, your plans, and set aside some of them to consider using them as living sacrifices, to set them apart for the work of God, not for your own elevation and your own consumption and your, your own, uh, you know, building up your own reputation. Then we spoke about the power of brokenness and, and what God does with loss in our lives. Jesus breaks the bread, and so many of us, we flee, we run from anything that could cause us to lose. But this is where God does his great work in our lives. He uses it to mold us and shape us into the kind of people that are prepared for partnership with him. And finally, we began to speak about the concept of, of giving. Jesus, after he, he sees the capacity of the bread and after he blesses it and it breaks it, he doesn't hold it, he distributes it out. And that involves community. At the end of the day, this miracle of miracles, God's provision, purpose, abundance, it was still dependent. God did his part. But it was still dependent on the disciples, the followers, and their willingness to participate in freely giving out what it is they indeed had been given. Not hoarding it or holding on to it or, or putting their trust in it and I'll just keep it here. Or as God said to Abraham in the Old Testament, the father of three of the world's largest religions, Abraham, I'm going to bless you in order that you might be a blessing. The flow of God's provision, power, abundance, it comes to an end. It ceases. It breaks down in the absence of community. It's like a river hitting a dam. It's, it's life-sustaining power and peace and purpose does not reach its intended ends. And oftentimes that happens because you and I withdraw from community. Jesus takes the bread and the fish. You know the story. He blesses them. He breaks them. And then he takes them and goes off to a quiet place and eats alone. No. That's not the story. On that mountainside, let's do lunch takes on this whole new paradigm. Uh, we used to understand as a community how powerful 
it was to be involved with others. We used, to, we used to live in a culture where it was commonplace and actually necessary. We needed to rely on one another. Things are so different now. Everything is customized. Everything is customized. Your playlist, your news, you name it. Like, you know, your workout session. I mean, everybody's just doing their own thing. See, we used to understand that, that there was a power involved in community. When I was a kid, we used to call community company. We were going to have company over. Something has happened in our culture, though. Really, it's something over the last 20 years has changed it all. I th you guys know Sebastian Maniscalco, the comedian? Um, he put his finger on this so well, and so if you'll just indulge me, check this out for a minute. I was sitting in my house a couple weeks ago. I was relaxing. My doorbell rang. This is weird. It's a different feeling when your doorbell rings today opposed to 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, your doorbell rang? That was a happy moment in your house. It's called company. You'd be sitting there on a Thursday night watching TV. Your doorbell rang, the whole family shot off the couch. Oh my God! Put the lights on, somebody's here! We got people! I, the whole family went to the door. The kids were in socks, they slid up to the door. <laughs> Nobody looked to see who it was. Right, you just opened up the door, you were like, oh my, look at that. <laughs> look at who's here. And the person would be like, I was in the neighborhood. <laughs> I might stop by, see how the kids are doing. They're like, oh, come on in. We're gonna have some cake. Your mother had a little Entenmann's. Maybe some Sara Lee crumble cake. Just in case company came over. She made an announcement when she bought it. She's like, listen, nobody touched this cake. This is for company only. The muffins, those are for you people. You better hope somebody comes over so we can cut the cake. She put her cake in the middle of the table, proud of it. And she put it right in the middle. Cut yourself a slice. My cup of coffee. We're gonna do coffee. Want some Sanka? Yeah, that's old school. A lot of the young kids are looking at me like, what is that, an iPhone app? <laughs> Your mother had a tin, brown and orange tin of Sanka, ready to go just in case the company, she put a big pot on the table. Go ahead. Nobody had a cell phone back then. If your, if your, if your, if your house phone did ring, your father stood up and said, nobody get that phone. We got company. <laughs> and you lost track of time. Two hours went by. You were like, we got to get out of here. Said, That's okay. Next time we're going to come by you. But yeah, my door's always open. <laughs> now your doorbell rings. <laughs> it's like, what the... <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Right? Your own mother's crawling across the kitchen floor. Get down my army crawl. Army crawl, get in the closet. Go get the sword in the living room. Somebody get the sword underneath the couch in the living room. There's a sword. It's hard to follow it, right? But, but it's, the reason it's funny is it's, it's so completely true. Um, something happened. I remember my mother buying that dopey Entenmann's crumb cake that we couldn't afford. And if nobody showed up, we'd get to eat it. But we'd get to eat it once it went stale the next week. And she got another one in case company came. Jesus had company. Do you? Because my guess is, the answer is not so much. We are living in a time sociologists are referring to as an isolation epidemic. The stats on this, I could go on up here all day. I would bore you out of your minds. But the stats are staggering. Let me just share a couple from the New York Times. Social isolation is a growing epidemic, one that's increasingly recognized as having dire physical, mental, and emotional consequences. Since the 1980s, what he's talking about, the percentage of American adults who say they're lonely have doubled from 20 to 40%. A wave of new research suggests social separation is bad for us. Individuals with less social connection have, this is going to sound familiar to some of you because some of you are walking in this, individuals with less social connection have disrupted sleep patterns, altered immune systems, more inflammation, higher level of stress hormones. One study found isolation um, isolation increases the risk of heart disease by 29%, stroke 32%. Another analysis found socially isolated individuals have a 30% higher risk of dying in the next seven years. Loneliness accelerates cognitive decline in older adults, and isolated individuals are twice as likely to die prematurely as those with robust social interactions. Parents, these effects start early. Socially isolated children have significantly poorer health 20 years later, even after controlling for all other factors. All told, loneliness is as important a risk factor for early death as smoking and twice as much as obesity. In fact, the chief medical officer for for, uh, health at Cigna said, quote, loneliness has the same impact on morality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And for our kids, it's even worse because loneliness is not just an age issue, it's generational. The percent of high school seniors, this is my daughter, who said they felt lonely, increased from 26% in 2012 to 39% in 2017, five years. The number of 12th graders who said they felt left out increased from 30% to 38% in that same time period. There's a lot of reasons. Here's one. In the late 1970s, 52% of 12th graders, more than half of the kids, said they got together with their friends every day. By 2017, only 28% did. In 2017, teens got together with their friends 68 fewer times a year than they did in the 90s. This is a crisis. I'm going to repeat it. This is not funny. 
That's funny. This isn't. This is a crisis. And if you don't take my words for it, take somebody else's, and likely Moses's, inspired by God, who wrote the first book in, in your Bible, Genesis. And in, that, narrow, in that, that account of God creating the wonderful world that he created, known as Eden, where God walked with and worked with man, there is perfect love and harmony and unity. Some of you know the story. Every day is good. Every day God creates something, and at the end of the day, God sits back and goes, it's good. Prior to sin entering the world, there is only one time in an unstained world that God says something's not good. Everything's good. Creates light, good. Creates water, good. Trees, good. Animals, good. Man, good. There's just one thing that God pronounced pre-fall as bad. The Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. See, and the amazing part of this verse to me is always that man wasn't alone. He was with God. He was walking with God in the cool of the day. But here's the deal. God created man in such a way that God wasn't enough for him. See, in Christian circles, it's often been said that there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man, and I think that's true. But there's a second hole. There's an other's hole. There's a community hole. See, the creation story... If you know it, there's this amazing verse where, where God says, let us make man in our image. Let me repeat that. Let us make man in our image. Us. Our. Who's us and our? See, you were created in the image of God, and God lives in community. God is community. That's what we were created for, to be in. Daryl Johnson is a longtime professor at Regent College in Vancouver. He, he actually is now a, um, a, a ministry. He was Bono, U2's Bono's fa former pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. He was studying to be an astrophysicist before he got seized by the beauty of God's transcendence. In experiencing the Trinity, here's what he wrote. He goes, at the center of the universe is a relationship. That is the most foundational truth I know. At the center of the universe is a community. It is, it is out and for that relationship. You and I were created and redeemed. It turns out that community is the Trinity. The center of reality is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christianity among the world's faiths is the only one that teaches that God is triune. He's one being who exists eternally in three distinct persons. The Trinity means that God is, in essence, a relationship. The Gospel writer John describes the Son as living for all eternity in, quote, the bosom of the Father. That was an ancient metaphor for love and intimacy. In, in John's gospel later, Jesus, the Son, describes the Holy Spirit as living to glorify Jesus. In turn, then, Jesus says that, that the Son glorifies the Father and the Father the Son. This has been going on for all of time. I like how Tim Keller described it. He says, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify one another. If we think of it graphically, we could say that self-centeredness, okay, that's what we are born into. That's what our normal nature is. We would say that self-centeredness is to be stationary, static. In self-centeredness, we demand that others orbit around us. Sure, we do things and give affection to others as long as it helps us meet our personal goals and we find it fulfilling. 
But the inner life of the triune God is utterly different. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, when we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her, we center on the interests and desires of the other. And you know what that creates? That creates a dance. You and I have been invited to dance. It's kind of funny because my wife grew up in a really religious household and they weren't, they weren't allowed to dance. And at the center of the universe is the gigantic dance. You don't have to take my word for it, though. Here's Jesus' final prayer for you. He said, Father, my prayer is that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and you've loved me, and you've loved them even as you've loved me. Think through this with me, okay? The power and provision and abundance of God is released into us, moves through us as we engage in community. The power is in the dance, but we've all become wallflowers. Somehow we've believed it's our primary purpose to, to better ourselves, to glorify ourselves instead of others. Think it through. It's really hard to live in community when all you're doing is competing with everybody else. My house is bigger, my car is nicer, my college my kid got into is better. We are operating and living outside of our design. We're passing it down to our children. It's killing us, and it's killing them. Heck, we've even messed up the gospel message. We haven't taught it right. Think about it for a moment. How many times have you heard it said that, you know, faith is very personal? And, and that may, may well be true for many faiths, but it is not true for the followers of Jesus. See, many of us found our way into this room because at some point we had a fundamental question which underlies every religious decision that's ever occurred on the face of the earth. How do I get right with God? What do I have to do? Where do I have to go? What are the minimal entry requirements to ensure I get to heaven and I avoid hell? What are the rules I must follow? What are the regulations I must know? How, how close can I get to the line and still be okay? And if I cross the line, how do I get back over the line? This is religious thinking. At the center of all of that thinking is the same person who winds up at the same center of every religious thought, me. Jesus is different. Jesus, listen to me now, Jesus did not come to show you what you could do, how you could be made right with God. Jesus came to die and pay the price for your sins so that by faith you are right with God. He took care of that work on your behalf. If you believe and will center your life on him, you are right with God. That is not what this is about. That is not what this gathering today is over. Jesus has a whole nother plan, a new covenant, a new relationship, a new command, a new ethic, a new movement. And it was not purely focused on you. It was, as I heard this week, 
not simply focused on you, but it was really focused on the you that's sitting right next to you. This is why Jesus said, my command, amongst all of the other teachers of the day, my command, not the ten that you're all aware of, I fulfilled all of those for you on the cross. You're saved by faith. My righteousness is imputed unto you by faith. Other than faith, there is nothing else you can do. So now I have a new command, and it's just one. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. That's why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was one of the best rule keepers in all of Jerusalem. He brags about it in the scriptures, how good he was. But once he comes to understand this new command and this new ethic of Jesus, here's what he wrote. He said, the only thing that counts, and imagine how hard this was for him to write, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He would go on for the entire law, all of it, the Ten Commandments, the 600 plus other ones in your, in your, in your Bible. They were all fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that, Paul? Carry each other's burdens. And when you do that, you'll fulfill the one law of Christ. And you cannot, think about this, you cannot do this with a scarcity mindset. Because scarcity mindsets say there's only so much and we're all competing for it. It drives us towards competition, winning, pushing down others, pushing away others, and isolation. We can't do that when our friends are all digital, when our communities are all virtual. See, we're connected in one way like never before and lonelier than ever. This is not our faith. This is not our call, and this is not how you were designed. The abundance of God, the purpose for your life, the provision he has for you is found as you engage in one anothering. You see it in the early church. When the disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, remember, they all fled, they were all terrified, they were all scared to death, they're all, you know, they're back to fishing. But then they meet this resurrected Jesus, and they become, their mindsets change, right? So suddenly it's like, you know, I, I can now live in a different way. I believe in eternal life. I think there is more than, than just what I see. I think we can trust what he said. They began, when they began to think differently, they began to live differently. How? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to company, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everybody was filled with awe at the wonders and the signs that were being performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of the people. Remember what Jesus said, if, 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 if I'm in them and they're in me and we're all together in unity, what would happen? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you see? God's purpose and power and provision in your life is released as you give yourself into community, as you give yourself to others, as you take the eye off yourself, as you move your focus, as we begin to teach our kids that the focus of the universe is not that they win, not that they be better, not that they achieve more. Heck, even the focus of our faith is not just them. But again, don't take my word for it. 
I mean, heck, even if you're here this morning and you don't buy into the whole Christianity thing, maybe you're here because the coffee's free or you're keeping your wife happy. Believe the science behind it. The Wall Street Journal had a headline that screamed a pretty interesting truth. Here's in big letters. You can Google this when you get home. Hardwired forgiving. Contrary to conventional wisdom that humans are essentially selfish, scientists are finding that the brain is built for generosity. They found that when subjects donated to what they considered worthy organizations, brain scans revealed that, quote, parts of the midbrain lit up, the same region that controls cravings for food and sex, and the same region are the same regions that became active when subjects added money to their personal reward accounts. To that, I have to say this. Heck, if you like sex, just wait till I pass this morning's offering plate. Ushers, can I ask you to come forward, please? <laughs> See, we're built for this. Not to pile everything you have up and put all your safety and security into, into some 401k account. I'm not telling you to live irresponsibly. I'm telling you to live in line with your design. They went on to say that research supports that generosity is not just a willful action, it is something that is ingrained in your anatomy. Yet, this is so interesting. I, this, this study blows my mind. I, I don't even know what to do with it. We are in a battle for our hearts and minds and the souls of our kids because we fall into a scarcity mentality and it causes us to function outside of that design. If you read the book, I encourage you all to pick up a few weeks ago, The, the God Guarantee by Jason Alexander. He, he cites a study, the 2000 University, um, 2000 University study at the, Cal at the University of California, San Diego. It's referred to as the sharing game. I don't know if any of you got far enough in the book to read this. This is, this is peer-reviewed research. Here's what happened. An interviewer offered participants in the study two options. They could receive $7, stay with me on the math, they could receive $7, and if they got $7, then an unknown person would receive $9. The second choice was they could receive $5, okay, so the first choice was $7. The second choice was they could receive $5, in which case an unknown person would receive $3. The overwhelming majority of participants chose option number two in which an unknown person would not receive more than they did, even though that meant that they would have less. Alexander wrote, I was shocked to read it. People simply didn't want an unknown neighbor to get more, and they would even accept less for themselves to ensure that outcome. See, when you get caught up in this, it starts to spread its tentacles everywhere. We become, we, we buy into the pattern and a mindset. We get a rut, a mental rut about radical individualism, believing we only can rely on ourselves. If, and when we fail, we're left with this deep sense of, of fear and despair and regret. The reality is the scriptures teach us that we have an enemy that would love to do nothing more than pull us apart from one another. And as we live with a scarcity mentality and compete with everybody over everything, we start to see God's creations as somehow less worthy or less deserving of our time and attention. Why? Because when we get fractured up, when we get separated, you name it, man, I mean, we are more, <laughs> we are more separated than we have ever been before. We are so much easier to control. And when we're frightened, you're open to all kinds of lies. Yet Jesus said... 
for my children, for those that want to follow me, there is another way. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Jesus was so serious about this, the importance of community and loving for others. That One day, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I remember I told you the, the parable of the talents, and, and Jesus tells this story about a landowner who goes away and he gives three um, servants different amounts of gold, and he says, I want you to essentially handle my estate the way I would handle it, and when I get back, we'll see what happens, right? Right after that story, Here's a story that Jesus tells about this concept of community and loving one another. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking about his return, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll, he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Okay. Remember, they don't know this story. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. You are blessed. You guys come. You're blessed by my father. You're going to experience his provision. You will live in his abundance. What? If you're in that pen, you've got to be going, why am I over here? Like, what, what did I do to get in this pen? How come I'm not in that pen? How come I'm receiving an inheritance that I'm not due? And Jesus says, well, here's why. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Now, you might know the end of the story, but the audience doesn't. And so they have to be saying, Jesus, you were, I don't, I don't remember seeing you hungry. I remember there was that time on the mountain, and there was all those people around, and we only had a couple of fish and loaves, and I'm sure you were hungry, and I remember that we, we, we had food there. That's the only time I can remember off the top of my head, and I don't think I gave you anything to eat. I think the little kid did, and Jesus continues. He goes, and when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You can imagine the confused look on their faces. I was, I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes, Jesus. I don't remember seeing you running around without clothes. If I had, Jesus, I mean, if I had seen you, I mean, if I saw Jesus without clothes, I'm fairly certain I'd give him clothes. If I, just saw, if I, if I saw Jesus hungry or thirsty, I, I'm fairly certain I would give him something to eat or drink. He goes on. He goes, when I was sick, you looked after me. When I was pr in prison, you came to visit me. I Even as I looked at this, I'm like, you know, if I saw Jesus sick, I'd probably take care of him. If I saw him in prison, I'd probably send him a card. <laughs> and, and so they do, the disciples do what you and I would do. They look at him and go, Lord, I don't remember doing that. Like, when did I do that? When did I, didn't, when did I see you hungry or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did I see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? I mean, heck, Jesus, I... I would like to take credit for it, but I, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus looks at them and goes, they asked him, when did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly, this means like, truly. Like, I really mean this. Here's what I mean. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Whatever you did for them, you did for me. It's funny. Jesus says, I have one command for you going forward. Don't make your focus all on you. Begin to care for others. 
Love one another. Now, some of you might be here this morning, and you know there was another interaction, a prior interaction, where Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, and he responded in a different way. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, strength, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe you're sitting there this morning going, well, I don't understand, John. Before Jesus said there was two commands, now Jesus is only saying there's only one command. Maybe there's a biblical error here. Is there a biblical discrepancy here? I don't, can I trust the scriptures? Here's what I would say to you. I think based on the story Jesus told, what he's saying is, essentially, if you take care of the loving you the neighbor part, you're taking care of the loving God part. Because God's provision and his plan and his purpose and his blessing and his abundance and his peace and his promises are released through us and in us as we gather in community and we overcome isolation and we stop competing and we start loving. As we close, how then should you live? I'll just give you a couple quick things. Number one, you have to overcome the gravitational pull of our society and our brokenness to isolation. Just like you overcome it to go to the gym. You don't want to go to the gym. Every time I leave, I look at my wife and go, there's nothing I want to do less than this right now. <laughs> I have a gravitational pull towards my couch. It's very strong. And we have that same gravitational pull towards isolation. I just want to be alone overcome it. It's not good for you. Demonstrate this to your children. Join a small group. You can't find one? Start a small group. Get it on the calendar. Have company over. Buy an Entenmann's. <laughs> Have lunch. Talk about something other than sports. Stop gossiping. Don't tear people down. Love one another. Let people come in. Two, give. You're hardwired for it. This is not a talk about giving, but now do you understand why Jesus talks about it more than he talks about any other thing? He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Nothing competes with your heart like your stuff. Give. It's your design. Give financially if you're not a percentage giver. The scriptures in the Old Testament talked about a tithe, the 10% offering, right? But in the New Testament, Jesus goes, I, I fulfilled that law. Here's the law. Love one another. Why do you give? Because you help one another. What's the new amount I should give? I love a joyful giver. But it's not just money. It's your time. It's your, it's your talent. Budget it. Literally, there should be a line to get up to the Beyond the Walls meeting right after this. We're giving you an opportunity to do these things. I'll give you two last ones. Join something. Here's the caveat, okay? You ready? Join something non-competitive. Think about it. Everything we stick our children in, Pastor John included, competitive. You got to win. You got to be first seat in the band, first place in the race, first team, first, first line, first team. usher your kid into something where it wasn't about them winning anything? What if you ushered them to a team where the desire was to, for others to win, to serve one another? What if as a family you figured out what a need was and you filled it? What if you found a hurt and healed it? What if you stopped waiting for somebody else to do it? I just told you, half of the people you're running into on the streets are, are wrestling with loneliness. Be the cure to somebody else's isolation. 
Don't wish there was a place for hurting or lonely or special needs kids. Find one or create one. And finally, please remember and teach your kids this. Life is not a competition. We're all going to learn that one day. Trumpet's going to blow. And I think the first thing we're all going to realize is, you know, the whole thing, it turns out, wasn't a competition. Do you know how relieved you're going to be that day? Do you know that day could be this day? You have been invited to dance into an eternal circle of self-giving love. Every person you see, every moment of your life is an opportunity to live and extend the dance. Every time you forgive somebody who hurt you, every time you encourage somebody who feels defeated, every time you extend compassion to somebody that's standing alone, every time you open your heart to a friend, you reconcile with an an enemy, you, you devote time to a kid, when you do that, you align your sails with God's central purpose in this world. His power begins to flow in you and through you. To live in and contribute to God's dream of community is why you're here. It's what you were created for. If you neglect this, it does not matter. See, if you tell your children to neglect this, it does not matter what you do or they do, what you build or they build, how impressive your resume is or their resume is, how much you make or accumulate or they do. When you do this, you live at a cross purpose with God. And when you live this way, when you neglect this, you will live in fear and you will die a failure. But if you will devote yourself to this one task, to loving one another, and no matter what else you may not achieve, you will live a life of beauty and purpose and significance, and you will find the peace you've been looking for all along. Let's stand and close this off.